Well, please open up in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Ooh, yeah. You know, I figured we're in the Gospel of John, and Revelation was written by John, and so we'll just stick with the John theme. The Bible is a pretty extraordinary book, and it is a remarkable work of literature, uh, even just in its own right, separated from the fact of inspiration. The Bible's just a remarkable work, and it's written over many centuries by dozens of different authors, uh, and it's important to note that the Bible is really more of a divinely curated library than a singular book. 66 books compiled ultimately by the Holy Spirit. It's a library whose books have a singular thing in common, namely that they have been breathed out by God, that they are inspired. Human authors literally wrote things on the page as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to Scripture, we see that God, as the divine author, has linked together in Scripture different themes and ideas traced through all the different books. I was raised in a Christian household, a faithful Christian household, and I grew up well acquainted with the different stories of the faith. And yet, they weren't just that to me. Stories, separated, individual, isolated narratives which is not the correct way that we should look at the Bible. We should see the Bible as an intentional story, not a, not a set of separated, isolated narratives. I never really, growing up, considered this question. Why have these stories been included? Why are these the ones that made it into the book? To ask the question more clearly, if all these books have been breathed out by God, then what story has God been threading through all of his distinct writings? The content of the Bible is not arbitrary. That's really important to note. It's not arbitrary. God has purpose in every individual part of Scripture. There exists in the Bible divinely orchestrated melodies threaded through all the different books of the Bible that together form a kind of meta-story, a high-level story or narrative, a unifying theme that brings together all the different genres, authors, and stories of Scripture. If God wrote all these themes tied together in his word, then we need to ask the question as careful exegetes of Scripture, what is the theme of the Bible? The theme. What is the story, the thread that ties together all the various sundry parts of Scripture. Here is my attempt at giving a single, unified theme for the Bible. It's not perfect, probably, but uh, I'm going to try and prove that this is the, the overarching narrative story of the Bible this morning. Here, here's my stab at, at a definition for the meta-story of Scripture. It is God's work throughout history to bring about an eternal dwelling place where he lives with his covenant people, obtained and secured through the work of Jesus. I'll say that one more time. This is the, what I propose is the unifying theme of the Bible. The Lord's work in bringing about a dwelling place where he forever dwells among his people, 
brought all about through Jesus. Now that I've stated that, I'm going to try and prove it to you. To do that, like I said, turn to Revelation chapter 21. The reason we're going to Revelation 21 is because the very end of the Bible picks this theme up and sets it center stage for us to look at and behold. And thus we'll look at how John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intentionally alludes to this meta-story at the end of his book. May the Lord grant us favor as we study the word this morning. Let's read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, and then we will pray. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, as we read this text, we are confronted with the reality that our world is broken, that sin exists, that death looms. And Lord, we yearn and we hope and we long for the day when the former things will be remembered no more. As we study your word this morning, grow our hope for the future. Grow our love for you. Grow our appreciation for the unity of Scripture. Now it tells a singular story. Father, may you be pleased and may you be praised in all that we do this morning. May it be for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible begins and ends by highlighting God's dwelling place with man. From Eden to the New Jerusalem, God bookends his great library with the same exact concept, his dwelling place with us. We're going to use John's writings as a lens to view the rest of Scripture and help us really understand this theme. So let's begin with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, John had just described Judgment Day in the chapter before this. So this is right after Judgment Day. This is what he says he saw, the new heaven and new earth. And the phrase new heaven and new earth was not actually created by John. It's not actually first used in Revelation. First time we see this phrase is in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Isaiah writes this, For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, I want to compare that verse to the very beginning of Revelation 21, verse 1, and then the end of our section, verse 4. I think you'll notice John does something rather interesting. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, pulling from the first part of Isaiah 65. And then he ends with, for the former things have passed away which totally alludes to the end of Isaiah 65, 17. 
And so John creates a kind of bracket around verses 1 through 4. He frames these four verses with language taken from Isaiah. Why? Why would John do this? Well, quite simply, I think, to indicate that this new heaven and new earth prophecy in Revelation was the same thing that the prophet Isaiah wrote about centuries before. Now, throughout Isaiah's life, he prophesied a number of things to come in the future. He prophesied of the restoration of Israel, of a time when all 12 tribes would be united, when a promised king from David's line would rule justly over them. Israel would, in that day, says Isaiah, be joined by nations of Gentiles, worshiping the Lord and living in perfect obedience to his commandments. The new heavens and new earth prophecy in Isaiah serves as a kind of apex, the greatest ultimate fulfillment of every promise of God in the future. Now, I think that Isaiah's prophecies, as we'll see in a bit, begin to be fulfilled before the new heavens and new earth comes. But the new creation is the eternal, perfect fulfillment of the promises. A place where the old, broken, cursed things have once for all passed away. So when John pulls this language into his own prophecy, it's kind of like he's saying, then I saw, after Judgment Day, the consummation of all God's prophetic promises. A time of ultimate perfection. A time of beauty. A time where the curse of sin and death has been fully done away with. Where the true King of Israel reigns forever with his people. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Revelation 21, verse 1, continues in the first verse to mention the sea, the sea being done away with. What's going on with the sea? Well, in Revelation, the sea generally signifies evil things. At different points in the book, it represents uh, uh, several things. Here's just a couple. Unbelieving nations, the place of the dead, and even the origin place of evil. John uses the language of the sea to refer to all of those things. And so when the sea passes away, John is saying the entirety of human rebellion and cosmic evil passes away. Revelation essentially says the first heaven and earth and evil, rebellion, and death is no more in the new heaven and new earth. God's plan to renew the earth, to remove the curse This plan, says John, was not a new plan. It's not a new hope. The prophets of old spoke about these things, and so too did the New Testament apostles. And brothers and sisters, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to just dwell on this. We can drink deeply from this fount of hope given to us in this text. Do you have in your life any woe, any discouraging thing? Do you struggle with recurring sin at all? Do you, does your heart feel angsty and perhaps angry about injustice? Or, or perhaps you see sickness or pain or death on display. There is not a single one of us in this room that are not well acquainted with sin and its effects. We know this well because we are still corrupted with sin. These things burden our soul. 
But this text, ultimately, Revelation 21, is written specifically for the perseverance of God's people, for the encouragement of God's people. And so when we read this, we ought to be encouraged. We ought to take heart. There is no evil thing that exists that will not be done away with in the new creation. There's not a single catastrophe or tragedy in our life that God will not set right on the last day. And that ought to create in us hope, genuine hope. Christianity is a religion of hope. Uh, Hope is an essential virtue for Christians. Paul says these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Hope is an essential virtue, and indeed our hope will not be put to shame because the sea shall be no more. We shall forever have rest, sweet, lasting, genuine rest in eternity. Let's continue on to verse 2. John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jerusalem, also called Zion, represents the dwelling of God's covenant people, a kind of covenant headquarters where he manifests his glorious presence. John describes the city of the people of God descending from heaven, adorned as a bride, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And um, I I think it's worth comparing that to a couple chapters earlier. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8, John writes this. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Seems relevant for this text. So in verse 1, the omnipotent God brings forth the new heaven and earth. In verse 2, the redemptive Lord brings his people clothed in good works to their new dwelling place, this new creation. And these two verses our background to the verse I want to spend some serious time on, essentially the rest of our morning, and that is verse 3. Verse 3. This is what John writes in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The Lord shouts as with triumphant vigor, Behold, pay attention. God's dwelling place is now with man. So verse 1, the universe is renewed. Verse 2, the people of God are brought into it. Verse 3, God too shall dwell there. Consider this. The greatest good of the new heaven and earth is not that death is put away. It's not that suffering is no more. It's not necessarily that perfection is attained. The gloriousness of eternity stems from this this sole fact. The Lord God dwells with his people. In that is found the preciousness of eternity. 
And that fact is our hope. That also is the theme found throughout the entire Bible that finds its climax here in Revelation. John, in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 22, intentionally uses language from a host of other texts to help us grasp the breadth of this hope. To rightly appreciate John's vision, we need to peer into the well of this great theme. I believe we find throughout Scripture nine clear developments of the idea and theme of God's dwelling place with man that culminate here in Revelation 21 and 22. And I wanted to spend some time investigating each of them in turn. You can go to the next slide. These are the nine developments in the Bible, I think, that develop this idea that John is pulling on. And in order to grasp John's point, I think we need to spend time with each one. So let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1 through 3 in the Garden of Eden. A river used to flow from Eden into God's garden. Genesis 2 tells us that this river split up into four great rivers that essentially watered the earth. These rivers brimmed with gold and precious stones. As though to say, in a way, that the life and worth of God's creation streamed outward from Eden. But the most notable feature of the garden was God himself. Genesis tells us that God strolled in the cool of the day among the trees. You see, creation, this fantastic act of creation out of nothing, did not only exemplify God's glory and his power, it provided a context in which God and man may live together. A place where humanity could face-to-face glorify God and obey him and enjoy him. The garden itself was a kind of cosmic temple, the house of God in the universe. And the Lord placed in the heart of his temple an image of himself, namely humanity. In Genesis 2.15, God told Adam to worship and obey him by working and keeping the garden as a kind of, I would argue, proto-priest in God's cosmic temple. Yet evil, treachery, brought this garden temple to catastrophe. Isaiah tells us of the effects of sin. Your iniquities have made a separation, really important idea, a separation between you and your God And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And indeed, God hid his face from the works of his hands. Genesis 3 tells us after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and fell, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God no longer dwelt with man. That was the ultimate consequence, punishment of the sin in Eden. A curse was issued by God. Creation itself began to rebel, both against God and his image bearers. 
And the greatest enemy of all loomed now, prowling, waiting to devour mankind. Though creation deserved nothing but the fiery wrath of the Lord, though all these things crumbled, Genesis 3 tells us a remarkable truth. God had mercy. God had mercy on his creation. He promised deliverance. Deliverance in the form of a child that was to be born. The serpent, the tempter, the devil was to be forever silenced by this child, crushed by the seed of Eve. And this child, I think by implication in the text, would undo what was just done by Adam and Eve. This child would succeed where Adam failed, would bring life instead of death. This child would restore mankind. And in him laid all our hope to dwell with the Lord again. There's no hope for mankind to be with God outside of this promise of a child. Genesis 3 preaches the beginning of the theme of redemption in a remarkable act of mercy. We do not again see God dwelling with man like in Eden until our text in Revelation. By beginning and ending the Bible with this same idea, it's as though the Lord is telling us, the story of the Bible is my gracious work through Christ to bring about an eternal temple, a permanent dwelling where I will forever dwell with my redeemed people. Genesis does not significantly advance this theme until we hit Abraham, the next, uh, next th- uh, development of this, this idea, this theme. So let's take a look at God's promises to Abraham, first in Genesis chapter 12. This is what God says to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the first promise he gives is somewhat unexpected to us. The first thing he says is, go from your country and I will give you and your descendants land. Why land? What's up with this land idea? Well, consider what just a couple chapters prior to this was lost. A garden dwelling, a perfect land was lost. They were ejected from the land where God dwelt. And God's first redemptive act is to promise Abraham, I will bring you into land. I don't think God's promise was for an arbitrary patch of dirt. I think God's promise was a hope of restoration to what had been lost, a restoration back to Eden. Look at the expansion of these promises in chapter 17, Genesis 17. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession 
and I will be their God. The Lord links together the promise of land, offspring, and covenant relationship. Three categories also found in the garden. God states, I will be their God, language that John uses in Revelation 21.3. When he says the dwelling place of God is with man, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. John's pulling on the same language that God promised to Abraham. Genesis 18, the chapter after uh, God says this to Abraham, is just a cool snapshot of this, a snapshot of a step back towards Eden. In Genesis 18, the Lord himself, along with two angels, comes to Abraham, and they kind of just hang out under a tree, shielded from the heat of the day, eating together. It was a picture for Abraham of what things were to be like when God's promises were fulfilled. The next next major development of this theme comes in the days of Moses with the tabernacle. After Israel's exodus from Egypt, God commands the people to build a tent, a dwelling. He says in Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God intends to dwell in the midst of his covenant people, in the land he promised to Abraham. This is as close to Eden as the world has gotten since the fall. In fact, if you look at the way God designs the tabernacle, it seems like it's meant to drudge up garden imagery. The entrance to both Eden and the tabernacle face east. Both have cherubim guarding the presence of God. Both have ministering priests. Both are surrounded by gold and precious stones. Both are littered with images of trees and fruit. And most importantly, both house the presence of the Lord God. The parallels between the tabernacle and the garden are incredible. God was redemptively recreating Eden step by step by step. But there were two major problems with the tabernacle. Major problems. Problem one was a problem of scope. The majority of humanity was still cut off from God. This is for the Jewish people. But the other nations did not have access in the same way the Jews did to this presence of God. But the second was a greater issue, a more pervasive issue. Sin and the separation it brings. It hadn't disappeared since the fall. Sin presented such a dramatic problem that though the tabernacle, like the tent, was in the middle of the camp of Israel, God's presence was still personally inaccessible to the people. God dwelt alone in the inner part of the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, a perfect cube in the center of this tent, visibly separated from Israel by a floor-to-ceiling curtain, a veil. This veil was a reminder, a representation of the sin that kept the people separated from God. It was a constant obstacle to genuinely dwelling with the Lord. And so it kind of alerted the people of Israel to this fact. If God was to ever truly dwell with his people again, the problem of sin would need to be dealt with. The problem of sin would need to be dwelt with. Nonetheless, the significance of the tabernacle really can't be overstated. God once again dwelt in the midst of his people. 
Still, the the redemptive work of the Lord was not completed. God intended not simply to have a temporary, movable dwelling, a transient tent, but a permanent dwelling. This leads us to our next development, the temple. The temple. King David was bothered by something. He had finished building a pretty epic house for himself. And he was like, I dwell in this extravagant house, and the Lord dwells in this tent. That doesn't seem right to me. So David goes to the prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, may I build a house for the Lord? And Nathan says, sure, seems like a good idea. Go for it. But that night, God corrects him. God says, no, no, David won't build me a house. I am going to build David a house. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. On the surface, God simply states that David's son would be the one to build a house for God. And indeed, Solomon would build the temple. Well, there's more going on with this promise. There's something deeper here. And we know that because literally all of the prophets exegete this idea for us. They look at this promise from God and see it as a future promise of an eternal king reigning over an eternal kingdom in a way that Solomon, David's son, had not fulfilled. And indeed, God has built for the, for the true son of David a house, a temple made of living stones founded on apostles and prophets built into an eternal kingdom that he reigns over. But alas, I have a couple steps before we get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. Solomon ended up constructing a permanent dwelling for God, this this glorious, magnificent temple. It it was such a remarkable work that after the temple was destroyed and the people rebuilt the temple, those who were familiar with this initial temple just wept because they were like, this is not anywhere near as cool as the temple Solomon built. It It was an extravagant, amazing temple. It was more ornate than the tabernacle had been. And it was simply riddled with garden imagery, even more than the tabernacle. From top to bottom, images of a garden everywhere, left and right. Solomon adds images of palm trees, different types of open flowers, leaves, pomegranates, pillars representing trees, gourds, lilies, wreaths, all sorts of images of flowers and trees and garden-type things. And he made all of these things with gold and bronze and other precious minerals and stones. The temple was a standing representation of the Garden of Eden, a singular point of God's presence. And as soon as it was complete, Scripture tells us that the glory of the Lord, the same cloud that rested on the tabernacle in Moses' day, filled the temple. It was a a leap forward. A permanent structure in Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God's salvation. And God's people, all of them, were to flow to this one temple to offer sacrifice and worship to the Lord. 
truly God was among his people. But still, the veil remained. The veil remained. And once again, sin and idolatry would lead to catastrophe, bringing us to our next period in redemptive history, Israel's exile. Prophet Ezekiel is a weird prophet. Let me just tell you. But Ezekiel has some fantastic prophecies with respect to the temple, specifically. Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 10 the glorious presence of God depart from the temple. This is what he says. The glory of the Lord went up to the threshold of the house, referring to the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, and his chariot lifted up its wings and mounted up from the earth. Ezekiel saw God leave his temple. Furthermore, Jerusalem, the city of God's salvation, was left to utter destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. Just as with Adam and Eve, sin brought about destruction, curses, and separation from the presence of God. But God did not abandon his people. God did not abandon his promises. And he tells Ezekiel later on in chapter 37, I will make a covenant of peace. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ding, ding, ding. Recognition bells. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Notice the language here. Set my sanctuary in their midst. Multiply them. My dwelling will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. We've seen these exact phrases used all over the place in the Old Testament. And by this, God makes clear, though he has departed this temple, his task of restoring humanity to Eden is not over. Israel in exile, yes. Temple destroyed, yes. But something better than the temple is coming. After this promise, God gives Ezekiel a a vision of a new temple a perfect temple. And the glory of God returns to this perfect temple. And from this temple runs a stream that waters the nations, kind of like how in Eden, a river flowed, split into four, and watered the whole earth. God foretells in this vision of a greater temple, a greater return to Eden, of a time where even sin would be put away. The prophets continue to reiterate the same themes again and again and again and again and again. Israel's restoration under a righteous Davidic king, a coming new and better covenant, the putting away of sin, wrath, and death, God's spirit being poured out on his people, and a new temple, a temple where all the nations, Jew and Gentile, would come to worship. And all this leads us to Israel's restoration, restoration. When the 70 years of exile were over and Israel was back in the land and the temple was rebuilt, we kind of, when we read the Old Testament, say, 
Is that it? Is that the restoration? I mean, all these prophets have been talking about this giant restoration. Is this it? Because it doesn't really look like it. Restored Israel wasn't exactly the picture of holiness and beauty. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us that Israel defamed and dishonored the rebuilt temple. They violated repeatedly the Sabbath day, and they even intermarried with pagans. The same exact kinds of sins as before. But what gives? Clearly, this is an Eden. Clearly, this restoration is not all the Old Testament prophets foretold. And then, next thing that happens in the Old Testament is it ends. That's the end of the narrative of the Old Testament. Honestly, kind of like it's not complete. Like it doesn't have a conclusion. Like it's waiting for an ultimate finale. Israel was in exile for 70 years, but the prophet Daniel foretold of a longer and greater exile. Though the 70 years of exile had ended, Daniel says that the 70 weeks of exile had really just begun. And as we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, we are greeted with the, the conclusion that the Old Testament lacked. Matthew 1.1, first verse of the New Testament says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew pulls these promises from Abraham and David, tying them to Jesus and says, this is the beginning of the end this is the conclusion to those promises and that story. The Old Testament ended. This is the, the end, the end of God's book. This takes us to our next theme, Jesus, the true temple. We're going through the Gospel of John, and just a couple of weeks ago, Rich preached on John chapter 1, verse 14, a verse incredibly relevant for our study this morning. John wrote... In 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal word, who's both with God and was God, dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. See the significance here. Now get this. The word dwelt in Greek is the verbal form of the noun Tabernacle. So the word literally tabernacled among us. It's just the verbal form of the word tabernacle. So in the intro to John's gospel, John tells us Jesus is the dwelling place of God on earth. A dwelling place in a tent made of flesh. And what did John say that he saw? We have seen his glory, his glory. What did the people see when they came to Sinai? Giant cloud, thick darkness. What did the people see in the tabernacle, in the temple? They saw a glory cloud. What did Ezekiel see when he saw the, the chariot of God rising up? He saw four-faced beasts and eyeball wheels and all sorts of stuff. But the point was he saw the glory of God. So when John says... Jesus tabernacles among us. The first thing he says is, we have seen his glory, like the people did at Sinai, like the people did at the tabernacle and at the temple. We have seen his glory. Jesus is the true temple of God. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus fixes both problems posed by the tabernacle. 
all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, by the work of Jesus, were brought into this covenant community. And second, the bigger issue, sin, that great enemy, the Lord Jesus put an end to sin. He crushed it. He, he crushed the head of the serpent as was foretold. And he did away with its legal consequences. Jesus secured for his people what no law ever could. Holiness. True, genuine, lasting, immutable holiness. In the old temple system, what happened to ceremonially unclean people? They had to stay at a distance because God was holy and they were not. But church, God's greater temple has a holiness that cleanses the unclean people who approach it. His holiness cleanses us. We do not make him unclean. Jesus was more holy, better than the temple in every way, and he fixed the problem of the veil. And we have to ask, I think it's important, why did he do this? Why did Jesus fix these things? Why are we purified? Why are we justified? Why are we made new? So that Christians may forever behold the infinite glory of the majesty of God the Almighty for eternity. That's why. It is critical that we understand the gospel does not secure mere abstract ideas. The theological truths of salvation are precious, but they themselves are not the purpose of the gospel. What does forgiveness do? What does justification do? Justification is not that significant in and of itself. The reason it is significant is because it is a means to the end which God has purposed, to dwell with God, to behold God, to love him, to praise him, to worship him, to enjoy him. All the theological truths that we treasure are worth treasuring. They are a means to this end. The essence of the gospel is God himself. We are saved so that we may forever dwell with our Lord and creator. In the old temple, the veil separated Israel from God. But the gospel tells us at Christ's death, what, what happened? The, tale was, the, tale, the veil was torn. He cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. We, saints, have access to God. Access through the new veil Hebrews tells us the new veil is Christ's flesh. Indeed, Jesus was right when he said something greater than the temple is here. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus. And apart from him, there is no coming to God. Without Christ, there is only eternal separation from his presence. It's the opposite of Eden. No one comes to the Father except through him. No works bring you to the Father no ordinances, no intellectually correct doctrine can even repair the breach. Jesus says, if you believe in him, you shall not perish, but have eternal life. To those here who do not know the Lord, who are cut off from God, 
You must realize that even your best deeds cannot fix what sin has broken. Your best deeds cannot bring you into the presence of the most holy God. You need to repent, turning from your sins and casting yourself in faith at the foot of the cross. Jesus tore the veil. You can be with God, dwell with him freely. Repent, believe, and you will be saved. After Jesus' resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there he sits, reigning over his kingdom. In doing so, Jesus inaugurated the initial fulfillment of all God's promises. The Davidic king, reigning over his people, all nations flowing to him, a new covenant, and the gift of gifts, his very presence, the Holy Spirit. And this is the phase of redemptive history we find ourselves in this morning, the church. Brothers and sisters, the temple of God, the dwelling of the Lord Almighty is in us now. We, the church, are the temple of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 2, you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is why we don't need physical temples as Christians. We are the temple of God, his dwelling place on earth. And all the nations flow into this new temple, the church, in order to offer right worship to God. And from the church comes all the life-giving blessings of God to both Jew and Gentile. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision, water from the new temple of God, God's people, which brings life to the nations. We are the beginning of the fulfillment of all the prophecies of old, but we are not their ultimate consummation. There's still one more step. Our glorious hope, what we await eagerly as Christians, the new Jerusalem. The complete fulfillment of what began as a promise to Adam and Eve. The consummation of what Christ began in his church. When we come back to our text this morning, Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And, he, and God himself will be with them as their God no longer separated by sin and death, no longer guarded by a cherub flaming sword or an impassable veil. We shall behold the glory of God manifest in our presence for eternity. John uses ideas and motifs from all the texts we've looked at to describe the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Here are just a couple examples. Like the temple. The eternally unclean are kept outside this dwelling place of God. Like the church, the new Jerusalem is literally, according to Revelation, built on gates and foundation stones named after apostles and prophets. The exact dimensions of the new Jerusalem are given, and it is a perfect cube. There's only one other perfect cube in the Bible, and that is the Holy of Holies, 
As though John is saying the new Jerusalem is the holy of holies blown up into a city. Precious stones and gold adorn every part of the city as in Eden and in the tabernacle and in the temple. A river runs down the middle of the city. The tree of life, only see, not seen since the Garden of Eden, is next to this river. And the nations freely take of it. Indeed, a, a state better than Eden. And the climactical statement is found at the end of chapter 21. John writes this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The next verse of our text, chapter 21, verse 4, tells us what this will be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Every Christian knows pain, some more than others. We know the pain of death, of sorrow, of sin, of loneliness and insecurity, unfulfilled longing, of regret, of brokenness. It's just part of what it means to be human prior to this side of the resurrection. All of us know sin, and that sin scars us. It scars us. Brothers and sisters, do you hear what John is saying in this text? Do you, do you get what this is, what, what this is promising? The former things have passed away. We, we can't even fathom what it would be like to have no sorrow like this, for our pain to be done away with, for our longings to be fulfilled. We have to have hope in our world because of these truths. The world is nuts and crazy and all over the place. It is easy to despair. Our lives are so often distracted by worldly things, maybe not even bad things, but worldly things. We forget what our destiny is because of the work of Christ. Perfection, bliss, rest, freedom, from sorrow, if we could only reach out and taste a glimpse of the glories to come. And in one sense, that is what we do on Sunday mornings, is it not? We reach out and we taste just a bit of the glories that await us in eternity, of a community that together worships God, that loves one another, that, that gathers around the presence of the Lord. This is our taste on this side of eternity of the new Jerusalem. It is worth valuing. It is worth clinging to. It is worth being present for on Sunday mornings. What is better in our lives than gathering with saints to worship our God? That is what we will do for eternity. That is what is worth doing now. In light of these truths, there's a couple quick points of application. For sake of time, I'll truncate them a little bit. <laughs> um, here's the first one. As Christians, we ought to be committed to profound holiness. 
profound holiness. The dwelling of God was most holy. All the ritual consecration, the sprinkling of blood, the anointing, all served to show that God's house was set apart. It was different because God dwelt there. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Let me speak clearly. Do not harbor sin in the temple of God, church. Do not harbor sin. It is not your temple. It is God's temple. You are his servant, the slave of Christ Jesus. Sin brought nothing but your separation from God. So why would you foolishly pursue the thing that separated you from your maker? Church, be holy. Fight sin. Hate it for the Lord's sake. Second, cultivate an enduring love for God. Eternal life is this, knowing God. For all eternity, we will worship and behold him. So don't wait for eternity. Worship and behold God now. Let the refrain of your life be an enduring love for God. Beauty, love, mercy, creativity, pleasure. God is the purest source of each of these things. Love him. Praise him. Let your heart be drawn to him. Sing to him. Sing loudly to him. Spend devoted time with him in prayer and meditating on his word. Learn to detach your heart from mundane things of the world. Our hearts are are fat by the world. TV, movies, social media, music. Guys, these things are lame compared to the Lord. They're lame. Why focus on them when we have God? If a single one of those actively draws your focus away from the giver of all good gifts, unclog the arteries of your soul and do not be fattened any longer by Satan's junk food. It's joy robbing. It teaches us to love things too easily. Love the purest good instead. We await the day of the Lord with eagerness, don't we? Let's pray and praise our Lord. Father, we worship you. We exalt you. We recognize that you are the author of Scripture and that through it you have threaded a singular theme, your work to dwell again with your people. And Lord, why What do we bring to the table that we may be counted amongst your people? What do we offer you that you would be so gracious and kind as to restore us back to Eden? Indeed, better than Eden, a state better than Eden. Lord, thank you for forgiveness, for the holiness that comes through Christ, through justification. Thank you for the gifts that you give us that we may once again dwell with you. Lord, grow our hope in the future. Grow our eager longing for this day of perfection. May you sanctify your church. May you, Lord, make us look more like your son, that we may be clothed in white garments, which are our good deeds. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.